it, you know, it was a scary time. Um, I, I could probably say um, I was always really good at being the best second chair possible when I was working with Garth. Mm. I was definitely second chair, probably even 22nd chair. I always felt like he was so wonderful to, to make everybody feel like they were in first chair um, until I realized, oh my gosh, you are really good at being second chair um, because I like the Joseph, of Joseph Campbell model of the, the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. The hero in the Garth story and the Winona story and the Rondell story, not that I'm putting myself at any of their levels, is that whoever you are guiding on the journey is who is the hero in the journey. In, in that case, it, it was the fan. Having these incredible spiritual experiences coming to a Garth Brooks show or a Winona show or giving to a charity. Welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris, with Lauren Tashman, my co-host. Hi, everybody. And today we have Rondell Richardson. He's an entertainment philanthropist. Rondell, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be with you guys today. It, uh, it's not lost on me that when we stand together, it's our finest hour. And here we are in Nashville and New York. And uh, big hugs to everybody out there who's listening, who maybe just in a little bit of struggle and a little bit of um, despair. My hope is that today we'll have an opportunity to lock arms, even if we're six feet or more apart. So really honored to be here. Thanks for awesome. having me. Thanks so much thanks for, for joining us. Thanks for being yeah. here. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, your role, um, what you do in life, uh, how you got there, uh, wherever you want to start. Well, it was a long, long time ago. <laughs> I, I, it's, a, it's a really, it's an interesting story. Everybody has an interesting story. I grew up in Nashville as a non-musician, but a lover of the arts. I always loved the way music transformed an experience. Mm. And I was lucky enough when I was a junior in high school, there were uh, some fellas that had gone to my high school here in Nashville in a little sub-community called Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, I was a student at Battleground Academy and the manager for Ricky Skaggs, Chip Pay, and the concessions manager for Ricky Skaggs, uh, Crom Tidwell, decided it would be a really great idea to hire a 17-year-old kid to go out on the road and sell t-shirts <laughs> the summer with a music artist. And I had no idea who Ricky Skaggs was, embarrassingly, at the time. I was a Prince kid and the police, and I loved mm. Michael Jackson and Madonna. I was, I was a rock and roll kid. And <clears throat> what was beautiful is I had a huge appreciation for the music, though. And I remember the first night we were in Louisiana. I think we were in Baton Rouge. And the Judds were there and Ricky Skaggs. And it stopped me in my tracks. It was, it was definitely a life moment. Wow. Uh, you know, like when you see a, a, a sunset really for the first time and you really feel it in your bones, mm -hmm. I, I can go back to that moment 34 years ago, just like it was yesterday. And it, it, it still 
it make, makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And again, not in a way that, oh, that was a beautiful A minor chord. It was, look at this collective, collective experience that, that all of these people are feeling. And I just knew, as a knucklehead 17-year-old, <laughs> I had to be a part of this in some way, some magical way. And fortunately, my parents were way cooler than <laughs> imaginable to let their 17-year-old kid go out on the road. Um, and we were all over the country, California um, to Maine all summer. And I remember coming back from that experience thinking, I think my life just got changed. Mm. And it, 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 it blossomed from there. Um, I went on to college and every summer uh, in between my, you know, the, when everybody else was doing something um, to advance their career, uh, doing a great internship with NASA or uh, <laughs> venting a cure for cancer, I was the kid that was like, I'm, I'm going to be out on the road the, this summer. And there were some great artists I worked with during those years, uh, starting with Ricky Skaggs and the Judds. And it, it blossomed over those four or five summers until the summer in between my junior and senior year of college. So now I was a four-year professional, so to speak, <laughs> roadie. It almost felt like we were making the movie almost famous, but from my strange perspective. The and country version. Country, uh, it had a little pedal steel guitar. Um, but the beautiful thing that happened was in that summer between my junior and senior year of college now, I met this up and coming artist named Garth Brooks. And what was so magical about that is here was another transformative time when I could have just been graduating from college and going into the corporate world and figuring out a path that way and instead, I took the path to still and created my own thing. And that's why I always loved, I was gravitating towards the name of your podcast. It, the path to still for me was the, the road unchosen, the, the more unconventional way um, to do things. And, and it was the summer of 1990 was a magical time. At the beginning of the summer, they were working the dance on Garth Brooks. And by the time I was going back to college in late August, they were working Friends in Low Places. Wow. And those are two of the biggest hits of Garth's mm -hmm. career. And I remember going back to him at the end of the summer, just like, thank you, thank you, thank you for this incredible opportunity. I, I felt like I had five lifetimes in those three or four months. And he said, oh, no, thank you. Why, why in the world are you thanking me? And he said, you reminded me of my story. And this is, this is just the magic of Garth Brooks, is that his parents would not let him come to Nashville to work on his music until he had his college degree. And I looked at him in the eye, and I knew this, and I knew this being a big part of his story, and said, my parents for four years have let me be a part of this unconventional path and they are going to kill me if I don't go back and finish my college degree. I'm one year away. 
I had some leadership opportunities at, at college at Swanee where I was uh, finishing up. I wanted to go back, but can you imagine the fever, the excitement of that time period? Sure. That friends in low places time yeah. when the world was really starting to discover him. They kind of knew him in the dance at the beginning of the summer, but by the end of the summer, he was bigger than Madonna. And he said, I actually have more respect for you that you are going back and you always have a seat at the table. And it's something that I'll always treasure and I'll always remember. And from there, it felt like I got launched out of a cannon. I finished my senior year. I graduated. I was very proud. I ended up coming um, to work for him. And uh, he started a company back in the early 90s. And we did everything, marketing for multiple artists. And, and I loved being a part of that. But I loved being an ancillary part of his team. Um, I learned how to settle box office shows. I learned how on sales for concerts worked. And no one handed us the playbook. No one said, here is your way. Uh, we all just kind of figured it out. And it was a very small team. And I was honored to kind of dip in and out. Um, I was working with a colleague who would go to some of the concerts and I would go to some. Uh, but I had some huge life moments. Uh, I helped with Central Park, his famous 1997 concert, uh, overseas a couple of times. And what I didn't experience or what I didn't know at that time was what a huge lifetime of experiences I had in, in my early 20s, mm -hmm. fresh from college, being a part of this, this world of service to others that I didn't quite understand. And I'd like to say of that period, I was falling into the service of being brave and I didn't know. I thought, oh, I could have gone to law school and learned how to read between the lines. But here was an opportunity as a non-musician to really be a part of something bigger than myself. And from Garth, when he retired, um, it led back into a lifetime with the Judds. Uh, I was, I worked with Garth for eight or nine years. I've lost track <laughs> a lifetime ago. Um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of living in those years. Um, a lot of great stories. Um, from, from my vantage point, I never, never experienced or never saw a person who worked harder than Garth. He, nothing was handed to any of us and it was beautiful to see, um, it, it was just a magical time. And I also appreciated and respected that he needed to go and be with his family at the end of this incredible time. Mm -hmm. And um, we, of course, parted ways, but lovingly and trying to figure out a way to always be a part of each other's lives. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, I happened to bump into Winona a few days after that. It was just like God was saying, here is your next journey. <laughs> and she said, okay, what are you doing now? And uh, I laughed because I didn't want to bear all of my cards and say, well, I'm actually kind of out of work. <laughs> Got something that. for me? <laughs> but she, she was so lovely and had been a part of my life for, at that point, 14 or so years. And we had been running ancillary paths through, throughout that time. And she said, well, mom and I are coming back to, together on uh, what was then their first reunion tour. 
in 2000. And um, we'd love to have you be a part of it. And it was magical because the parts of the Garth experience that I loved the most, um, there were bells and whistles galore, but one of my favorite memories of being with him was he was such a humanitarian. He was really helping people always before we even knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. And I remember a big visual moment of, we were in Memphis one year, I believe it was 97, it could be 98, those years kind of all blur together, but it was 97 or 98. And he wanted to go and participate in the life of St. Jude and thought, well, I could take my guitar to St. Jude and play for the kids, or we could bring the hospital to the pyramid in Memphis and let them have a full blown lights and the smoke and all the experience. And that day coming to work, which every day felt like a ride on the roller coaster, the, the most famous and eloquent and ex experiential roller coaster you've ever experienced in your life. But coming to work that day, I could still get a lump in my throat because I remember the pyramid being lined with ambulances. Oh, wow. And normally, you know, pre 9-11, that would be, a new, it would be an unusual sight. And it was middle of the day, it was two or three in the afternoon. And I sat in the back row and watched the first two or three rows with hospital beds and the IV poles wow. and these kids having a full Garth Brooks experience at the pyramid. And I've never heard him talk about it, probably because it's so personal to him, but it was so personal to me that I remember another one of those moments, of, you know, the path to still pay attention to this moment. There's something really powerful mm. in this, what would be an otherwise normal work day. Wow. And uh, he flipped philanthropy on its head these kids needed to feel like normal kids again. Yeah. They, they wanted to have the experience. I remember there was some discussion about how loud do we make it? And it was like, no, we do a concert like we do a concert. And so that imprint was left really early into my career. It was very amplified when I went to work for the Judd family because these were civil servants at, at the core of who they were. And as part of the reunion tour with Ladies Home Journal and Good Morning America, they were gonna stop at domestic women's shelters around the country aligned with the tour. They had a partnership and a commercial that was funny with Kmart at that time. And Kmart would sponsor these visits to mm. these shelters. And those were bigger and more loving and more heartfelt than anything we were experiencing in an arena. Sure. Uh, we, were, we were going to where life was being lived and recovery in, in its finest. And so that was an early uh, imprint that I had with Winona and that family. And I, we never really turned back from that. Once we started that and felt the magic, that, that term entertainment philanthropist really started sinking into my soul. My job as her general manager for those eight years was to make her larger than life um, I always like to say I wanted to have a conversation. I wanted her to have a conversation with America mm. the way she and I would have just sitting on her back porch or at a dinner. And there were so many life lessons and, and beautiful experiences that came out of those 
back porch conversations that really changed her career. And one of them was her commitment to philanthropy. And so um, about year seven or eight into that journey, I had a really heartfelt conversation with Winona. It was another big life moment. And we were in Washington, DC, and we had just done an amazing event for an organization called Youth Aids. And we did live swabbing of uh, young kids, 16 to 20, in Washington, DC. And it was one of the first times, this would have been 2006, it was one of the first times that you could actually do an HIV test in person. And there was some fear from this organization that can we destigmatize this? Who better mm -hmm. than bringing this larger than life redhead to say, oh my gosh, I'm going to swab myself to see if I have HIV. But if I, but to feel the feelings with them, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. to, to make sure that she was on the journey with them. And although not nervous that she might have HIV, that was a very personal thing and a lot of emotion that day. And, and I remember, um, CMT was there and BET was there and CNN and Fox News and uh, then Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist was there and he was intimidated by Winona. I'll say that lovingly. <laughs> and so whatever you need, like funding, support, I'm all in. And, and, and so I saw this crossing of like in a magical way, I saw this beautiful bridge that was being built. Uh, and it reminded me of the Judd song, when we stand together, it's our finest hour. It's a part of the line of love can build a bridge. These beautiful bridges were being built. And I, you know, as with anybody, we don't take a lot of time to really reflect on our life, lives that much. But in that moment, I realized what a big moment that was. Um, that you had Bill Frist there, that you had CNN there and CMT and Fox News and you had this platform and you weren't selling a record or a book. Mm -hmm. You were talking about a global pandemic at that point where in Washington DC, uh, young women between 18 and 22 were contract, con contracting the disease at a higher rate than even third world countries. And mm -hmm. how ironic that we're in Washington DC talking about HIV the way we needed to be talking about it all over the world, but that, that, was a, that, that was a hot zone at that time. But there was a lot of emotion that day. And we went to dinner that night and Winona said, you're really good today. And I said, good, okay, like good as in Island of Misfit Toys, good, like you're a good, <laughs> good little dentist. And um, just a boy who wants to be a dentist. <laughs> call ourselves the Island of Misfit Toys. And the big nugget of my life happened at that dinner. And she said, no, you were really good. Like you managed us. You made sure we were all messaged up, so to speak. We had our marching orders, but this is where your light really came on today. I really saw it. And at that point in our trajectory, we had raised over a hundred million dollars for charity in the last four or five years that I was with Winona. The first four was Lilo and Stitch and let's be in some movies and let's, let's blow ourselves out of a cannon and, and really have that 
Backport's conversation with America, the last four years of my time with, with her were, how do we raise awareness for charities? And so this idea was getting birthed for entertainment philanthropy in a way that, although we were certainly trying to sell music and books and singles to the radio, there was something more at play. And I don't throw around those numbers very often to say we had raised by that point 100 million for charity. That's a huge number and that's a life-changing number. But in the nugget of that conversation that night and her saying, no, this is your life calling. Like you're really good at taking care of us and me. And I'm very grateful. But I saw something, I saw the light and I've never seen that in you. And um, this is something you need to be doing. And I said, yeah, <laughs> when I win the lottery, <laughs> you won the life lottery. Mm. And I remember that, I mean, it, again, that was 14 years ago, but it feels like it just happened five minutes ago. It felt that right. And so in that, I won the life lottery moment, you know, that, that reveal like where Ed McMahon walks the check to your door. <laughs> my life was made and I, it stopped me in my tracks for a long time. And I figured out six months, like how can I make this work? And how can I pay my mortgage? Um, she thankfully was so graceful and beautiful, like as always and said, hey, I'm gonna take the year off too. I, we've been killing it for the last eight years. I'd like to have a break too. And you always have a seat at the table. So go and, and be the boy scout that you're just dying to be <laughs> and come back and share your, your heart and your stories. And I'm, I'm thankful that that dinner launched into this, this, what has been now a 15 year career of just mixing entertainment partners, high profile individuals, sports, you name it. Um, political figures into helping a charity either through marketing or fundraising and I can't imagine I'll ever do anything for the rest of, else for the rest of my life. So it sounds like even from the beginning it's not like you set a goal like I want to do this and I'm going to go after it. It was more just like you felt the possibility of being a part of something or knew you wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, I, I can still uh, remember that first year of launching a brand. I called it Greater Purpose Productions. And I think about the dignity of that moment, the humanity of that moment. Um, in one of the rooms in my house where we are, I had a ton of sticky notes. And um, on January 1st, I was earnest. I started calling people and said, oh my gosh, we've raised a hundred million dollars with this one artist, what can I do for you? <laughs> and people were mistrusting of that. They thought, right. well, that's great. That's great for you and Winona and happy for you and Garth. Um, but I already have my relationship with Vince Gill and Amy Grant, and I'm not sure I need the bridge connector. Uh, so it took some time. It wasn't extremely strategic. I did an event in, in Southern Alabama in that first year, and it was very sweet. And I think we raised $10,000, and my payment was a lasagna. The <laughs> <laughs> team that was putting this together said, we thought you worked so long and hard, and it was probably hundreds and hundreds of hours. I, I wasn't um, really trying to figure out a way to monetize it at that point. 
I went back and got my PhD in service to others, so to speak, <laughs> doing it, just showing up to every ground breaking, every uh, children's hospital opening, you name it. And I was all over the country. I was working harder than I ever had until I realized, aha, <laughs> I need the plan. I need to figure out if I help someone raise $10,000, what was my share? And it was a lot of um, spiritual work. It was a lot of work to be able to say, what feels honorable? What does not desecrate the humanity of anyone else that we're working with to say, I helped you raise 10,000. Is it fair to ask for 10%? And I, at that point, I was doing a lot of stuff all over the country and expenses were piling up. And I'm sorry, SunTrust doesn't take a lasagna. From <laughs> so I had to figure out life really quickly. Um, but that's when the, the real courage sunk in mm -hmm. and strategy. And you've got to be, you can have a huge heart, but you've also had this brain that you, you can recall a lot of memories and experiences. Um, I think I learned more from those early pitfalls. I don't call receiving a lasagna from the sweet team down in Alabama any by any stretch of pitfall, but I just kept thinking, this is great. How can this be better? Like it's, it's like looking at the iceberg and thinking, all right, how am I gonna navigate this? Because you only see, what's the great Ernest Hemingway quote? The dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one ninth of it being above the water mm -hmm. so the lasagna was above the water the <laughs> under the water was I've got to be more strategic I've got to dig deeper I've got to justify I've got to you know double time and the reality was I got into a hustle mentality too like oh my gosh I've got to pay my mortgage sure. but I also I, I just didn't want to um make it so slimy that someone would see me coming and be scared like oh gosh he's gonna he's gonna come and ask me for money and I, I i figured out a natural rhythm with it but not without a few hiccups and and that lasagna was really yummy it's honestly nice to hear because i i being full disclosure consider myself to be probably the worst business person in the world because i just want to help people and everybody's like yeah but you, you have to pay the bills right so what what was that tension like, right? As someone who had such a strong tide of purpose, but now you're trying to not only make a living out of it, but use it to also, you know, create this money for others. Well, talk about that a little bit. It, you know, it was a scary time. Um, I, I could probably say um, I was always really good at being the best second chair possible when I was working with Garth. Mm. I was definitely second chair, probably even 22nd chair. I always felt like he was so wonderful to, to make everybody feel like they were in first chair um, until I realized, oh my gosh, you are really good at being second chair um, because I like the Joseph, uh, Joseph Campbell model of the, the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. The hero in the Garth story and the Winona story and the Rondell story, not that I'm putting myself at any of their levels, is that whoever you are guiding on the journey is who is the hero in the journey. In, in that case, it, it was the fan. Having these incredible spiritual experiences coming to a Garth Brooks show or a Winona show or giving to a charity, um, the charity is first chair. And so I had really perfected this fitting in culture 
um, serving everywhere, almost belonging nowhere. And I, I loved that part, but I had to continually tweak it. Um, it became less and less difficult to ask for money because I knew it wasn't money to me. Like I was helping raise money. I was part of a mission, but I, I was not building a big palace and buying fancy cars and jetting off to Rome on the weekends. <laughs> I mean, I was in some really sexy places in Idaho and <laughs> in the trenches with people. And I realized and appreciated what a provincial set of circumstances I had been presented with. How lucky for me to be able to be in a hospital um, and walk in with an artist and the artist um, becomes the student and the student becomes the teacher almost that, that they bring in the hope. Um, then they see a sick kid and the sick kid finds resiliency and then becomes the teacher. You know what I'm talking about? That yeah, yeah. A beautiful circle. The student becomes the teacher, the teacher becomes the student. And that was another huge life lesson is I don't have to know everything and every nuance about philanthropy or business. Um, but if I ever lose that part of it, then none of this is worth it to me. And so if you don't have the heart, um, I don't think the car starts. I think, I think your brain can help you make sure you keep a roof over your head. Um, but I, I, I never lost heart. I never lost faith. There were some trying days, but I was really grateful for those quiet moments of standing in a hospital room or watching that or witnessing it and saying, I may not have that little piece of the puzzle figured out yet, but again, when we stand together, it's our finest hour. We find a way to make it work to our, where our deficiencies might be a little lack, you know, where we may be, I'm uh, not the most savvy business guy, but I'm going to figure out a way to never lose my heart in spite of business. That's all really important. And I think we can all make a difference in our own way. Like everybody gets to be a philanthropist. And how did those come about? Did those lessons, were they, did you develop them strategically or was it trial and error or Oof. talk a little bit about that? I think, oh man, I just think God put people in my life at the exact moments that I needed them. Mm. I have a photo that I have not, widely shared and um, it was taken about five years ago and I think about this photo um, it's it has Vince Gill who I had known uh, and worked with from 1988 my second year on the road um, I worked with a band called Sweethearts of the Rodeo and Vince Gill was a musician in that band and um, he and Janice and their daughter Jenny um, traveled with the family. There's the photo. So there's Vince Gill to his, well, and if you're facing the picture to his left, but to our right is then Mayor Carl Dean, who is one of my heroes personally. Uh, in 2007, when Carl was running for mayor of Nashville, a friend of mine, Liz Etzel from Swanee was helping the campaign and said, hey, come and be in a commercial for Carl Dean. And I thought, well, I've never done that before. Um, <laughs> so I got to meet Carl and what a gentle spirit he was. Um, 
the director actually had us change shirts. So I had a, a long sleeve blue. I had been around the film industry and TV industry and music video industry for a long amount of time to know that don't wear crazy colors or patterns. So I wore a very uh, Brooks Brother blue shirt buttoned down and khaki pants. And Carl had on a khaki shirt and khaki pants. <laughs> so the video director actually had us change shirts. So I actually wore Carl's shirt in, in the video when he was campaigning to be mayor. And I was so proud that he won and never more proud of being a part and very ancillary part of his life um, than when he was the mayor of our city in 2010 when we had devastating floods in Nashville. And I thought all of my heroes uh, had been in the music business, the Vince Gills of the world, the Garth Brooks of the world, but I really saw tremendous leadership in our local village uh, in a way that I had never experienced before. And Mayor Dean was the face of that leadership. He was empathetic. He was calling people into service for being brave and courage. Um, he, he was fighting for what we needed as a culture, uh, but not demand, denying the humanity of others, if you will. So there were people who died as a result of the flood, um, and, and he didn't want to treat that cavalierly. Um, he just, he kept digging in and wasn't scared to um, feel the hurt. He, he, it, it was a tough time in our city. Um, but I'll never forget his leadership. And so yet another leader uh, in this pristine moment of time, this photograph that catches it 2015, to his uh, left is my buddy, Miles Adcox, who's the CEO of Onsite Workshops. And Miles and I have dreamed up some incredible dreams. He's probably the only person in the world I would ever go and jump out of an airplane with. Um, <laughs> that says <but> a lot. <laughs> We did, and um, it, it, it's not a really uh, crazy story. We were bored one Memorial Day weekend, <laughs> and we were like, do you want to go to the pool? No. Um, he, he said, hey, if we want to go jump out of an airplane, <laughs> if I can get us some spots on jumping out of an airplane, do you want to go do that? So Miles is my buddy that metaphorically, emotionally, literally, he's the one you want to go jump out of an airplane with. And that was probably yet another experience of the path distilled that Miles being put in my life some 10 years ago was really one of the greatest blessings of my life. We, um, this picture is taken at an event called Inspire Nashville, which was created, cultivated, if you will, on his back porch over conversations over a year of how do we inspire local bravery and um, make sure that we're honoring the everyday heroes of Nashville that are inspiring. And Inspire Nashville has raised, uh, oh, I know at least over a couple of million dollars since it started. This was the first event and I was honored to be the co-creator of this with Miles, um, my airplane buddy that I'll, I'll <laughs> never forget. And literally, we were figuring this out as we were going along. And I had done fundraising and events for over 10 years at this point, but this one felt like my own. It felt like a baby that was, was created 
in the spirit of jumping out of an airplane in a big way. To, to Miles's left is one of my other heroes, Pete Fisher. Pete was the general manager at the Grand Ole Opry and the CEO of the Academy of Country Music. Um, but despite his credentials, he's one of the finest humans on the planet. Um, Pete was the first person in 1995 in the music business to say, Hey, I just, I'm looking out for you. I just want to make sure that you are living your fullest and best life. I, I see you as something more than just being on the road. Are you, are, are you happy? Are you content? Pete was that guy that would just cut right to the core. And um, he was the first person that really offered me that next level job at a manager level. He said, I see you as a manager in the music business. I want to pull you into to artist management. Um, you know, you, when someone believes in you that strongly, you never forget it. And that, that initial act of generosity from Pete some 15 years ago really, really impacted and changed my life. I didn't leave working with Garth, but I certainly felt like I had um, air in my, in my tank, in, in the tires again. Mm -hmm. So that, that belief that Pete had in me as an industry leader in the music business so long ago, really, really, um, you know, that wasn't 15 years ago. That was 25 years ago. I'm getting old. So it's starting to, <laughs> it's starting to, you know, math, math is hard. So I, um, I just, I try to think, I look at this picture and I think perspective is a function of experience and my perspective because of these four huge humans that I'm standing with really impacted and empowered my life. It helped me take the armor off and use my heart. That event could have been a disaster, but it wasn't. Um, we had Jewel there, Winona was there, Big and Rich was there, Vince Gill was there. And we created some magic that I'll, that I'll never forget. But that, that photo really represents the generations. The, just the, again, that one night that you see above the water, but there, there's a whole lot of work that goes into it and how that's a line and cross. So it's a really magical memory. So there's two questions popping out now that I've heard kind of the arc of your story. The first is you just mentioned that he saw something in you and it, you know, created that belief. Have there been, did you believe in yourself at that point? Have there been times where you've questioned, you know, that kind of self-belief? Wow. Yes. Yes. Um, my, the, the jumping into greater purpose work into the entertainment philanthropy side or the philanthropy side of the entertainment mm -hmm. philanthropist job um, was really, um, I wouldn't say landmined. I just kept getting reminders that you need to stay the course, mm -hmm. but also within a three year period, as I'm launching these efforts, my dad passed away. I lost my dog surprisingly to a, a crazy illness and he passed away my beloved dog Grady and then my mother died so within the course of three years of launching this effort um, there was a lot of humanity that needed to be un unraveled like what what am I doing um, and so I think that I was put into a situation where I really worked on who I was as a human, 
as a human being, not as a human doing. Um, I wasn't ever really that guy who was interested in having his name on a billboard. Um, I just wanted to be in the trenches and I wanted to do the work. I wanted to, to get a PhD, if you will, as my friend Miles says, a PhD in myself. Um, because if I hadn't had those tremendous losses, I don't know that I would have ever been propelled forward. I think if I had been in the, the music business fully at that time, um, I would have just burrowed in and said, let's go find another Lilo and Stitch. Let's have another number one record. All of that was beautiful, but what was really substantial in terms of life growth were those like one, two, three punches. Mm -hmm. It still hurts sometimes to talk about it, but I also am, am very grateful to have been surrounded at that time with people who allowed me the space to feel the hurt. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to spread the hurt. I wanted to feel it. And a lot of people would look at me and go, Oh, bless your heart. I'm sorry for your loss. That must be why you're doing this kind of work. Mm. Um, someone said one time, you kind of gave up your beach house career <laughs> oh, God. from the music business because I'm <laughs> Brad, I'm uh, a Pisces. So I love the water and I, at, at one point after my mom died, those 13 years ago, I just needed to go stand at the beach and have conversations with God and reevaluate, should I get back into the music business? And I famously had a lunch with one of my music industry friends who I, who I cherish beyond belief. Um, but she said, you don't need a beach house. The beach house is within you. But you gave up that ability to have you know, fancy life things, mm -hmm. but I've never wanted things. I, I wanted experiences. I wanted to learn from people. I wanted to help teach people. And so I was glad that I did not stick with something mm -hmm. that um, wasn't resonating in the, in the depths of my soul. I, I, it is not lost on me the profound feeling that I've had when I've had a life accomplishment to say, Oh my gosh, my mom and dad would be so proud. You know, they were huge civil servants. They taught us to give back and in, in bigger ways than just going to church on Sunday, they were on every committee. They were philanthropists before we even knew what that meant. Um, I think the music business was always kind of the sexy, the sexy piece. Um, but the real quality work, the dignity um, of of serving others was always a calling to my soul. So those, those icebergs helped me dig into a deeper um, feeling of awareness for myself and the pain I was feeling. Um, but can you turn your mess into a message? And that's really what I worked hard to do in those, those scary years, those first several years. It's, it's beautiful to hear that. And sorry for all that loss, of course. Uh, was there ever any point, not necessarily just during that time, but during this, you know, beautiful career that you've made and that you at any point thought, well, maybe I, maybe I'm not going to continue on or maybe this isn't going to work out? You know, 
I would be lying to say every day was, you know, dancing in the tulips, uh, you know, whatever <laughs> is. Uh, when I went to work at Vanderbilt uh, in 2010, uh, I remember a call from a buddy, Daniel Miller, who at the time was working with Faith Hill. And I was doing an event, I think I was in Miami, and uh, it was a hard one. And Daniel called and said, hey, who's our Rondel at, at Vanderbilt, sp specifically the Children's Hospital? Um, Vanderbilt University Medical Center is an academic medical institution, so it's by nature and by virtue of its proxy, a nonprofit hospital. And most people don't think that about academic medical centers, like, oh, why would Vanderbilt need my philanthropy? Mm. Um, margins in healthcare are so thin that that kind of pays for the staff, but building buildings in, in an academic medical world um, really comes from philanthropy. And I really understood that from, from the beginning. A friend of mine, Tatum, had worked in at Vanderbilt Children's, um, Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital. Vanderbilt is the, is the full name. And I, I love the Carroll family, so I always make sure I say the full name because it's very important. But Tatum had worked there for several years, but had an idea hatching in her soul to help musicians find healthcare benefits and, and started um, Musicians Health Alliance, Music Health Alliance is what it's called. Um, and Tatum always had her eye on that, but she worked at Vanderbilt coming out of the music business and uh, forged this beautiful path, but had been away from Vanderbilt for a couple of years. So when Daniel said, who's our person at Vanderbilt? I, I called. And they said, as, as strangely as this seems, we have been looking for someone. Uh, do you know anyone? <laughs> and I was thinking, uh, I think I do, but, but say more. And so I, I believe I had 32 interviews for the job. And meanwhile, I was still working all over the country doing things. And um, I was so grateful for that call from Daniel because I would have never picked up the phone to see who the person was at Vanderbilt, this enormous uh, academic institution. And at that point, it was one Vanderbilt. It was the University and Medical Center aligned. And, and I guess I tricked them enough to believe in an old merchandise carny from the Garth Brooks day <laughs> from the judge could actually um, work in an academic medical institution slash uh, academic, like academic powerhouse. Like, how am I going to trick them into believing that? But the beautiful thing, and this in a roundabout way answers your great question, is I didn't have to trick them because I think they saw my heart. Um, I, I wasn't trying to be the chancellor at Vanderbilt. I wasn't trying to be the CEO of the medical center. I was trying to help people tell a better story and connect to a mission that was bigger than all of us. And those days were so beautiful. So um, one of my first successes, I remember it was in the fall and we brought an artist to the children's hospital and was walking back to my office and I was overcome with emotion. And I just looked up and said, thank you, mom and dad. Like, this, for believing in, in the, the path to still, like this unconventional journey that I'm now, I've tricked these people <laughs> into believing that this is going to work. And it worked. 
And then I got back to my office and realized all of that was on October 28th. And that was the anniversary of my mom's passing oh, wow. two years before, like that feeling. So I knew they were with me, that awareness that I had with me, even when sometimes when you don't believe in yourself yeah. to have that kind of nudge of wind to push you forward. It was a perfect, perfect fall day at Vanderbilt walking you know, by campus and, and seeing everybody enjoying life and the golden leaves kind of flying in the air. Man, this would make for a good movie if they ever <laughs> story of my life, which no one would, but it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And it was the anniversary of my mom's passing wow. uh, two years prior. And I just thought they had a hand in it. Like somehow they puppeteered it somehow when I was 17 and I went home and said, hey, this guy wants me to come and sell t-shirts on the road for the Judds and Ricky Skaggs. And my mom said, you're crazy if you don't do that. Like I have this hunch that we could see the trajectory of this before I even understood the magic of it. And that's what I hold on to is even if I think I've made a mistake or I'm gonna give up or this doesn't make sense, then suddenly it makes sense. Suddenly you realize you've been blessed beyond measure, even if you've hit a couple of icebergs. I have a question and uh, it goes back to, I guess it covers all this time period, but do you feel that you or any of the artists with whom you've worked have had um, interest sparked in part because maybe the, let me back up, that the seed may have been planted for doing public service work in the way that they, um, noticed their audience responding to the songs or the individuals responding to the songs. Do you think that is kind of an entry um, into the work that you do at any level? Yeah, one of the, I think, wow, I had never really thought about it. I, I took a breath and thought that feels absolutely right mm -hmm. of almost every artist that I've ever worked with uh, from Garth. Um, no one comes to a Garth Brooks concert to hear that perfect A minor chord they're coming to put their arms around each other mm. and celebrate humanity and be a part of something bigger than themselves. That, that's the magic of Garth. The beauty of Winona is that tender voice, like it's big and it's strong, but the tenderness of her voice, when it almost cracks in a Joe Cocker kind of way, like she's, mm. a, she's the consummate singer, mm -hmm. but she feels that music and those stories in her bones and therefore her fans know it. You can't trick dogs and kids and you can't <laughs> country music fans. Country music fans can feel it if it's being like forced down their throats. And when I worked at Vanderbilt, a good year for us was we would have between 50 and 60 artists come and be a part of the life of Vanderbilt. Um, part of the beauty of working in an academic medical institution slash university is everything's really data driven and people want data. And one of the folks who was hiring me uh, in those 32 interviews, which I learned later, I was gonna have 32 bosses and I was really grateful for that. <laughs> but she was you know, rubbing her chin away and said, I just don't think the entertainment industry is philanthropic. And I felt that 
in a, I think she's throwing the gauntlet down, but I also didn't react. I'm, I'm an emotional guy in, in a deep way, but not in an angry or insulting way. But I remember thinking, I'm going to show her. I'm going to prove to her that the entertainment industry is philanthropic. I never ask for a dollar for Vanderbilt University or Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I teed up relationship. My title was actually the entertainment industry relations manager, the longest title known to man. And I had all of the people in my ear saying, don't forget Vandy Athletics. Don't forget Dirk Bentley's reunions coming up. Oh, what about the Children's Hospital? Oh, Voice Center. And so I learned all the various divisions of Vanderbilt and just created a safe container for people to come in and have a rich and wonderful experience with Vanderbilt. This not at the time warm and fuzzy institution, I felt like my job for my 32 bosses was to make Vanderbilt warm and fuzzy. But I could sense it when somebody would walk in and they'd get down on their knees and they'd hug the kids. They wouldn't ask them why they were sick. I felt it in my bones. And there were other times when people would look around and say, where is CNN? And there's a difference there. I certainly gravitate to the ones who just get down on the level of the kids and say, normalize the moment. Uh, I had great mentors and friends and still to this day, life friends who taught me, don't make the kid in the children's hospital feel less than. They just want to be a kid. They just want to play. And so that made me work harder. But between those 50 and 60 artists, you could tell the ones who wanted to be there and the ones who were doing it because they were almost in number one and they needed that extra little bit and hey look at me and vote for me for a CMA award you, you could always tell that but I, it wasn't my place to judge I could feel it I just thought in a judge-free zone everybody that walks through these doors belongs to this family and back to one of the original questions that you guys asked a time or two back I remember that when someone said if you ever think you're going to quit Vanderbilt take a walk through the children's hospital waiting room. Mm. And I'm telling you, I feel it in my throat. I feel it in my bones today. If you've ever been in a children's hospital waiting room, you will never leave service to the children's hospital. Um, as, as it was, I was being recruited away for a beautiful leadership opportunity that I couldn't pass up and wanted to keep expanding this great work. I didn't leave under duress. I didn't leave because we were working 80, 90 hour weeks. I didn't leave Vanderbilt. It's still a part of me. It makes me proud to see the, um, the work that we did those five years paying off today, um, that maybe more kids' lives are being saved, that maybe the artist that came in there to get on their knees and hug the kid, or the artist who's looking for the camera, every single person deserved a seat at the table. And I always wanted to build out a table where everyone had a seat, perhaps because I also wanted to have a seat. I wanted to say, oh no, the entertainment industry is philanthropic. Um, when I left, they told me that through my efforts of facilitating relationships, this team had, had raised over $25 million. Wow. And I didn't ask for a dollar. I just set up for relationships to happen. And some of that is still manifesting today. It feels like a, a parent, uh, who sends their kid off to college and they they get to see their wildest dreams come true. So I, I still get those calls from Vanderbilt like, hey, what's going on with such and such artist? And um, it, to, Kevin, to your point, 
of is it kind of an expectation or are the fans really into this um, real-time data from the tornado that just happened in middle tennessee and in nashville particularly um, through cookville the, the long swath of people that were hurt and homes and lives destroyed and of course lives lost um, to date we have had 232 artists participate in the life of this recovery effort through marketing, through fundraising, through giving money, through hosting blood drives, through you name it. Oh. Um, and I'm only saying that because I think every single person who did participate got in there with the earnestness of rolling up their sleeves, mm. that wanted to be a part of something bigger than themselves, wanted to take the path distilled to a degree. I don't know exactly what to say, but I'm gonna show up anyway. And um, Winona used to quote Bono in that way. She would say, Bono told her one time, just show up and let God walk through the room. Mm -hmm. And I think that happened with the tornado. I think that happened at Vanderbilt. I think that happens with philanthropy all over the country. I've, I've seen, I've been in New York and LA and, and watched the masters of the craft uh, do their thing. Mm -hmm. And I always learn from every experience that I ever get to be a part of. And no one does it perfectly. But isn't that the point? If we just are all in it together and find a way to collectively stand in humanity like we would at a Garth Brooks concert with the fans, with the kids in the children's hospital, with the leaders who might be a little skeptical and still be arm in arm and say, together, we've got this. To me, that's the secret sauce. That's the magic of letting judgment go, of expectation go, of, okay, well, you raised 25 million. Can you do 50? Um, I, I think that's what, that's the best part of humanity for me. If we look at kind of what's required to create the opportunity for this to happen, what do you think are some of your keys to success? Whoa, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, keys to success. I, um, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan mm -hmm. and friend. She came into my life five years ago uh, at the Grand Ole Opry, Pete Fisher, who was in the picture earlier, um, had invited Brene. She was in town doing a speaking engagement and he knew, hmm, I need to make <laughs> these two uh, figure out a way to meet. And Miles was there and there was a whole group of people. And um, Brene pulled me aside immediately and we went into the Women of Country Music dressing room at the Grand Ole Opry. And there's Tammy Wynette on the wall and, and there's um, you name it, every female member of the Grand Ole Opry in this, in, in the world, we're on this wall. And here I am meeting this woman who is changing the global conversation around mm -hmm. vulnerability yep. and courage and bravery. And there's like 15 words that she could be identified with. Sure. And my heart was racing. And she started asking me questions because she's a good data researcher. <laughs> good question askers too. Um, and what I learned from her was that, and I think about this a lot in terms of the generosity model that she has. If you give a slice of pizza away from the generosity pie, mm -hmm. 
you don't have any less generosity available to you. So in other words, if you think I'm going to exhaust myself by being a part of a campaign or, uh, or something to raise awareness or pushing yourself out of your comfort zone into courage, you don't have any less generosity by giving away your generosity. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't learn that until five years ago. And that has been the biggest lesson of my life is I just try to give generosity away as much as possible. I learn from people. I, I try to teach people, you know, it, it's hard too, but it's not lost on me. There was a, a young gentleman who's living in New York city and he's about to graduate. Um, he will have his master's in vocal performance and he's an incredible tenor vocalist for opera. He's a fantastic opera singer, but he's young and it's going to take three or four years for his voice to mature. I love that he called me to talk about generosity and the music business and Mm -hmm. philanthropy and service to others and how to give back. And so those moments, uh, as recently as three days ago, really lift my soul. We had a, a beautiful conversation and, um, he, he's going to be, he's, he's fine. He's on his way. It was the student teacher thing again. Like I was learning from him. He's already performed in Italy. Um, I, I was talking about an opportunity that we had. Um, like, can you imagine as an opera singer getting to do a little mini tour of Italy? Um, and I can't wait for those tours to happen again, post quarantine, like yes. it, to me, it's <laughs> more amplified. Absolutely. But, it flashed back to a, a quick story with Winona in 2005. She did a little mini European tour and she wanted to sing Ave Maria in a church uh, cathedral in Bologna, Italy. And it required special papal permission mm-hmm. from Rome. And we found the connection really quickly and we reached out and they said, you know, Winona sang for the Pope in 1992 in Denver. She can absolutely do whatever she wants. And that was a light moment for her. But I thought, how does that conversation with this young opera singer-to-be who's already performed in Italy, combined with this experience from 15 years ago of creating an experience, uh, how are those connected? Somehow, magically, they just are. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to be all things to all people. But to be able to, to give that moment back, like, oh, okay, so if I ever need to perform in Italy, I know who to call. <laughs> it, it was more than just that. It was, um, how can we be as united as we can while, while we are actually in a standing apart culture right now? Um, so my hope in the season where we've all gone within is that we're going to be able to push out more of that. And so the, the, the bookends of my Italy experience uh, coming back into my face this week just shows the, the beautiful circuitous nature of our life that there's still so much um, work left to do. Just when you think, okay, I've been lucky. I've had a couple of trips around the merry-go-round. Um, <laughs> I'm very grateful. I'm very humble. But um, somehow that experience is going to help my opera singer uh, star to be in ways that we don't know yet. 
I have a question uh, going back a little bit. So you're 17 years old and you're on the road. Uh, you're going through college on the road. You're connecting with Garth Brooks at the end or during that time. At what point did you see your life as being different than the normal path or different from others? Did you recognize it? I, I did. <laughs> I, it, it maybe took me a little bit longer because I think uh, if you had asked my friends who were standing with me on this journey in those early days, um, I almost couldn't put words to the experience. People would say at, at my fifth year high school reunion, um, does that be right? No, it's 10th year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> was, was the day after, see, I'm terrible at math. <laughs> Don't worry, I am too. <laughs> uh, 10 years after I graduated from high school, I went back to my high school reunion. And the day before, the, the Garth Brooks Central concert was on a Thursday night. And it was one of the craziest, wildest experiences that I'll ever be a part of and was so honored to just be a small little part of it. Um, but that was Thursday night. We got to the park at 7 a.m. and we left the park the next morning at 7 a.m. It was the first time in my life that I ever had a 24 consecutive hour work day. And I was in my bones tired. And, and this, I thought- This is the Central Park um, in New York um, City, right? Yeah. yeah, it was a great, it was a great synergy of, as, as with everything with Garth, it, it's so thought through, it's so strategic, it's so purposeful. Um, Mayor Giuliani at the time uh, was trying to welcome people back to the city in, in, in 95 when the conversation started. Um, it was not Disneyland like it is today, you know, very family friendly. It, there, was, there was still some, there was high murder rate. Yeah. You know, it, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, America City at that point, mm -hmm. but uh, Mayor Giuliani at the time really wanted to bring people back to the city. HBO is the master of music entertainment, like, of recorded performance, and okay, let's put a country singer in the middle <laughs> of Manhattan and see how that works. <laughs> and so the social experiment that was that w was some of the most magical, you know, the years leading up to it. And I kept pinching myself, like, how did I get to be a part of this? And when I went back to my reunion, I was a little bit numb because I didn't know how to put into words what I had just experienced. That as a 25 year old, I was sitting at the table with the mayor of New York, the head of HBO and this incredible artist. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about humanity at a, at a higher level. This wasn't about selling records. It was about bringing people back to Manhattan, to the Big Apple. There was a great logo with an apple and Garth, the Garth silhouette was in the middle. And it was perfect. It was perfect. But I didn't have language for my emotions at that point, which is why I cite Brene as such a great example of that, because I didn't know how to put into words how magical that was without it feeling anything less than humility that I was feeling in my soul. I was just so honored to be a part of it. And I didn't know how to say, yeah, I'm working with Garth Brooks. And one of my friends who I really still love to this day, and we talk pretty, pretty regularly, but he actually gave me a huge compliment and he didn't know. He said, oh, you're still doing your summer job. And I thought, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, um, it, it had amplified and it had, 
it's like the Grinch's heart that it grew a hundred times. <laughs> um, I felt my heart getting bigger in those days and I didn't know how to put language and words to what I was feeling inside. So to meet someone like Brene, and again, right on time, in this full lifetime of experiences of things that we've all imagined to be the best days of our lives, I, it, it wouldn't have been complete without also meeting Brene five years ago, who gave such beautiful language to what I was feeling and wasn't able to say 20 years ago. It's not like I rewired the pathways of my brain to change the experience. The emotion was still there. Like, oh, are you still doing your, your high school job? It's like, I was so grateful to still be doing my high school job, but I had expanded it in such a way that it was nine layers deep by that point. I was in the trenches. I was learning the music business from the guy who was rewriting the playbook with Garth Brooks. Like who could imagine that a country singer could play in front of a million people in New York and and it's such a magical time. I don't know that we'll ever be able to experience that again. My hope is, yes, we will, and we should. Um, but I'm extremely grateful that Brene came into my life in such a magical way to give me vocabulary to things that I was feeling. Uh, that's her magic, is she's just using data. She's not making stuff up. She's, she is really changing the global conversation around vulnerability and shame and therefore becoming courage and bravery. And um, I had the blessing to get to take her, talk about a circle of life moment. Oh, that would have been a great picture to share too, is uh, taking Brene Brown to meet Garth and Trisha. Um, I think it was in 2016, so four years ago, because of all the things that she had done to bless and deepen and enrich my life. Like how in the world can I repay Brene, Brene Brown? And, uh, I've become close with her family, her sisters, and um, so we were all able to go and experience this magical moment. You, you know, I've had a 30-year relationship with Garth, and they gave us great seats, and we were right there. Like, it just felt like you could high-five him, <laughs> and my friend Vicki Hampton, who's the best singer in the world to me, she sings background, you know, with Garth, and she's blowing kisses at us <laughs> up the night. And the most magical moment was Colin Baton Rouge. When, when Garth performs that song, I just happened to have the, the, my little iPhone camera on and I was filming Garth. I filmed a little bit of Vicky, but I turned it back to film Brene and her sisters. And at the end, they collectively hug mm -hmm. in, a, oh, wow. in a way that I'll never forget. But the, the magic of that moment was not lost on me. The seeing the three sisters huddle around what was an anthem for them from college and high school and being able to give them that, that blessing and the divinity of that moment. She talks about it in her book, Braving the Wilderness, about shared humanity and experience in that moment and how much it meant to her personally to have that experience that we all deserve everybody deserves you know a, a, a trip around the merry-go-round as many trips around the merry-go-round as as possible but she always gave data backed words to fill emotional gaps and i just wish she had been a part of my life longer and i'm grateful for the time 
And I'm grateful that I still think about that moment and I still have it on my phone. And every once in a while I can watch them singing at the top of their lungs, <laughs> celebrating and high-fiving, but then thinking about everybody in the whole arena um, coming together in those friends in low places, anthems, and, and it, it was a beautiful bookend to, to the story of my life, to have Brene and Garth in the same room. I was going to say, what a powerful, what it sounds like similarly felt experience to the one you had the very first time you did this, right? Realizing the power of music and, you know, the possibility of it. The, the big, like seeing Garth as, um, if Garth can do it, I can do it. Like that was the beauty of his whole experience was that he thought, I'm a good singer. I'm, you know, and I'm a good songwriter, like, I, and, and I think he's a great singer and a great musician and a great songwriter, but I think he always thought of himself as the everyman. Like, if Garth can do it, I can do it. And that's his secret sauce. And to see the two of them interact along with Trisha and uh, Barrett and Ashley, Brene's sisters, who are family to me, all of these beautiful souls coming into that moment, um, and Miles was there. Like it was, it was such a, it was an, it was an incredible moment of uh, 30 years in the business of connecting great souls for, for, for larger purpose than just let's sell a couple of tickets or a couple of books or a couple of, you know. Could you feel the energy? I could. Yeah. And only because it, I had experienced it before, but I didn't have the depth of experience before mm -hmm. the iceberg experience of like, you could see this part and inside it was just like every molecule in my being was so proud of this moment that I had introduced these two incredible conveyors of truth in our life. Like Garth conveys the message of if I can do it, you can do it. Brene says it's actually more courageous and braver to be vulnerable uh, and own own your um, deficiencies and true belonging doesn't require you to change who you are it requires you to be who you are mm. and I say that to myself every single day and I wish that I had had the notion and those thoughts and those feelings I had those feelings but I didn't have words to use those feelings back in the day of I'm still do doing my high school job. I'm really proud of my high school job. Garth paid me a tremendous compliment a few years ago and said, I always trusted you because you weren't a musician. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, I just, I love when people trust me, but I understood what he meant because I didn't, I wasn't jockeying for position mm -hmm. for his job or to be his manager or to be anything other than just have a, have a place on the team. And it, I really swam around in that a long time is that you never know who's going to trust you or who's watching. And the fact that this beautiful friend of mine of 30 years just trusts me, whether I'm a musician or not, um, I could give him the truth and say, again, no one comes to a Garth Brooks concert to hear that beautiful A minor chord. They come to put their arms around humanity. And so I think a, a non-musician can say that. I think a musician can say that. But I appreciated that in, in his benevolence, he blessed my life. Like I always thought, what am I doing in this field? I'm not an artist, I'm not a musician. But the reality is sometimes you trust the people who are just gonna to speak from their heart.
that's that's where I took that that beautiful compliment. And was that an advantage across the board? Do you feel? Do you think that you were able to leverage that throughout your career? Super great question. I I think I Winona used to say, "You're the left brain to my right brain," <laughs> and I loved that. And I thought, I, you know, then would go Google, what is left brain? What, the <laughs> left brain? Uh, what does that manufacture? How does that represent? How does that show up in your personality and your humanity? And um, it's funny because I'm not good at math. I love data, but okay, I can be, I can be your left brain. But in her saying that, it made me really also activate my right brain. The, the right brain of our personalities and our humanity, it's an important part to the whole us. Like, yes, I'm primarily left brain. I know how to stage uh, an event. I know how to raise money for charity. I'm really grateful for a lifetime of experiences. But I also am finding later in life that I'm using the right brain more. And I'm happy to use the right brain more. So, I mean, you've had an amazing journey. And it's been really cool to just hear all the different facets of it. You've talked about some of the lessons you've learned kind of about people and, you know, the, this industry and career, but what have you learned about yourself throughout this journey? That's a really great question. I think for so long in the, when I was in the music business, I had a feeling of, I'm not worthy to be here. This is just my high school job. It was a set of lies that I would tell myself. Uh, I didn't own my divinity. I didn't stand in it, certainly. Um, but I learned over the course of history that all I was doing was staying in second chair. But in life, sometimes you have to move into first chair. You have to own that worthiness and stop telling yourself that just because you're not a musician, your opinion doesn't matter. That's not true. Um, you, you know, oh, you're still doing your high school job. Well, yes, but look at what it's become, this magical piece. And so what I realized when I was in it until 2006, in, a, in an artist management kind of way, that I told myself that I wasn't worthy. And I didn't believe it because I was telling myself. And what I've come to find out was that I was always worthy. We're all worthy. And so what I learned about myself was I showed up, I spoke with integrity. I always, I was always brutally honest, still am to, to this day. If somebody calls me and says, I want this artist to perform for the animals. I'm like, this artist is very passionate about the kids. Can you <laughs> figure out how to do it? And I do it in, of course, a loving way. Mm -hmm. But I also think um, there were days when the lies, I, I believe the lies, that I didn't deserve a seat at the table and that I wasn't worthy. And so what I've learned over this, this lifetime of more trips around the merry-go-round than I ever, ever imagined or expected, I've, I've certainly had huh, a full soul as a result of it and very emotional and I breathe that in. But I also think um, if I could go back and tell my 25 year old self, you're going to be okay. You're going to soar. You're going to find creative ways to get out of a jam. You're going to help a bus driver from Nashville, Tennessee, like from my place in Nashville, change a tire on a bus. 
in Portland, Oregon, and all the myriad of examples of crazy stories that I've had. I wish I could tell that kid, believe in yourself, believe in your abilities, believe in your own humanity. Um, what I've learned about myself is that through the lens of others and service to others, um, I'm actually a really good friend to others. Mm. And I never believed that because I thought, well, people just see me and they run the other way because they think I'm going to ask them for money mm. or something to do. Uh, the reality is I just meet people where they are now. And if, if I hope that I'm not intimidating, but if for some reason I am. Definitely not. <laughs> people will always afford grace. And by affording grace to others, you also have to afford grace to yourself. And so in this culture of we're all going in inward, like what we come out with hopefully is an abundance of grace for others and, and meeting people wherever they are on the journey and to encourage ourselves to stop believing that we're not worthy and to stop believing the lies that we all don't belong in the first chair. We do. Sometimes you, you relegate that to the charity you're working with or the initiative, the path to still might be first chair some days. And Kevin, you might be first chair the other days. And so it's beautiful when you don't have to size all of that up. And I, I wish that I'd had those superpowers back in the day, but maybe that's what um, life well lived is all about, is recreating the pathways, the neuro pathways to say, you actually did okay, sir. Good job, pig, as they said. <laughs> um, I'm really grateful for that. I, I never wanted to take more than my share. And I feel like I've had an abundance of shares. But again, with that generosity model of the pizza, just because you give generosity away doesn't mean that you have any less. But that also applies to being generous with ourselves. Sure. So one of the things, you know, that... Uh, Kevin and I are curious about, I'll say, coming from our background and how we met was this, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, this uh, interesting question of kind of nature versus nurture. You know, do we believe that we are created to be, you know, who we're going to be or, or become what we're going to be? Or do we think that there's some uh, uh, responsibility on this, you know, kind of nurture side of things. If you had to put a number to it, you know, and, and kind of give a percentage of nature versus nurture, what are your thoughts on that? I love that. My, my gut, I always trust my gut. My gut says 50-50. Okay. I think 50% um, growing up in a household that was of service to others, it's, it should be a surprise to no one that that was my collect, collective mm -hmm. experience as a kid is I was watching that. Um, it was, I was feeling that in a very uh, developmental way when I was a kid. Um, I was building kickball teams, like, you know, like swim meets, things, you know, creating experiences and cultivating experiences for my friends as a kid, mm -hmm. because that's what I was watching my parents do. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I went to college and when I went to Swanee, I really started to feel alive for the first time in my life. And, and I think it was simultaneous to, to these magical summers of being on the road with these incredible, bigger than life personalities who by very nature were being vulnerable with their art by every night writing these masterful songs and putting their hearts and songs and, 
what if it doesn't work? What if you fall flat on your face? And what if people don't connect to that? And I was feeling the bravery from that industry in a way that maybe was a little bit in the nature piece. Like it was, they were just naturally gifted. Mm. But I think being a part of this community, we also have fed each other. We've nourished each other in a way I, I just can't see it as being anything other than 50, 50. Um, I'm sure there's data to prove me wrong, but I, <laughs> but I think in, in this scenario, um, if you show up and you suit up and you wait for God to walk through the room, anything can happen. And so I think some of it is, is kind of in your, in your genes and some of it is as a product of your environment. There are a lot of people who have been certainly way more successful and way more fulfilled. Um, I still feel like I'm scratching at the base of an iceberg to climb and experience new things and figure out the next plane to jump out of. I think that's in my very nature to want to do that, but it's also a part of my um, community. Like it's, it's, it's both feeding me from, you know, outward and being outwardly nourished, mm -hmm. but I'm also inwardly nourished. So to me, it's, be left and right brain, be, be business. Like the, the very nature of someone saying music business is a contradiction because you've got music, which is art and business sure. commercial. And then you throw in philanthropy in there and you think how in the world does all of this fit? It fits when it's 50, 50, when both have a seat at the table in such a neutral way. Is there anything that we haven't asked that you feel is important <laughs> to share? Oh my goodness. I think um, one of the things that I'm feeling on my heart today is it's not lost on me that this is the first time in over a hundred years that the world has, has kind of slowed down in a way that helps um, perhaps a, a reboot, a reset, a reaffirmation mm -hmm. of skills and strengths. Um, right beside my door back there, I have a little sticky note that says, declutter the past, get the germs out, declutter, helped me find that great picture. <laughs> uh, be more creative in the, in the present. Mm -hmm. And being creative is think of new ways to communicate. I'm a people person, no surprise. Uh, I have really been a rule follower also and, and have stayed within. And within these walls, I think, I love the house that I've built. I love the community that I've built. How am I gonna be creative to tell somebody in a different way that I love them today? And so I've worked really hard to check in with my, my peeps. Um, I have a great nephew that lives in town named Micah. Okay. And someday he might listen to this and, and never will understand maybe the full magnitude of what we've experienced, but, mm -hmm. but I do feel like, um, I heard Brene say this recently that you have to grieve the loss of life that you had before because it may never be the same again. Yeah. So in being creative to be a great uncle, a great, great uncle, hopefully, um, and also just a great friend and business partner and, um, servant to others. I think being creative with the way we tell each other that we love each other and that we're in community, um, being creative in the present day also is, I wanna encourage everybody to be the best philanthropist they can. You don't have to be friends with 
Garth Brooks or Winona Judd or Brene Brown. You just have to show up and suit up. Like, just put me in, coach. Um, a $5 lemonade stand gift through the tornado relief that we experienced in Nashville was, was as much to me as some of the larger corporate gifts that came in. But everybody suited up. We had 22,000 people who wanted to help their friends and neighbors in Middle Tennessee and made gifts from as little as a dollar to as high as a million dollars. And every single one of those 22,000 found a way to be creative in their current state to be a philanthropist. And, and so that's important. And then, man, oh man, do I dream about the future. So my little sticky notes is declutter the past, be creative in the present, and also dream about the future. How can we be better? How can we be stronger? How can we change the global conversation around philanthropy and what it means to give back? Um, some of the best philanthropists I know are teachers and frontline workers in hospitals. I've worked in a hospital. I pray for those people every day and know the, the in their pores, in their bones, they are feeling a service to others. So how can we love each other in the future, both, both in the present and in the, in the future, feel a way to, how can I support them anymore? The most important biz, uh, uh, building in any town, in my humble opinion, is a children's hospital. And that's never been more apparent than now. So I think about those kids every day and, and ways in the future to get my arms wrapped around them, both with uh, community love and resources and continuing to send artists over to, to be a, a part of that and also just being a part of it myself. So that's, that, that's kind of my motto these days of past, present, future. Um, everybody's doing the best they can. I really love that. If you meet people where they are, um, this is scary. This is scary times. And, and I've lost friends in the music business to this dreaded uh, virus. And, and it breaks my spirit into, but the show must go on. Like we have to keep finding a way to let the art get into our culture, to let those kids in the children's hospital be served in some magical way. And by George, I'm gonna figure out a way to do it and just love harder than ever. What is the biggest takeaway from your story? Man, uh, don't give up. Um, when I was young, six or seven, we had moved around a couple of times and I jumped off a high dive and didn't know how to swim. And so maybe that's a theme that I have in life, <laughs> right? Like, you know, <laughs> um, and I remember my parents were mortified. They were like, well, you don't know how to swim. What in the world were you doing jumping off of a high dive? And I said, well, Wendy Wyatt did it. She was my cherished next door neighbor, probably first girlfriend when you're six or seven or eight, you don't know uh, what roles you have emotionally other than just a tremendous amount of feeling towards, well, Wendy, Wendy jumped off the high dive, so therefore must I. And a feeling that I've had a lot lately that I think is very common for others to be experiencing right now is a feeling of being underwater mm -hmm. to a degree, like what's it going to be like when we come back out of this and we will come out, but what's it going to feel like when we're back on the, on the top. But when I was six or seven and didn't know how to swim and had to then put myself in <laughs> swim lessons like <laughs> the next day, I remember thinking, I don't know how to get out of this. Like I'm, I didn't quite know how to kick and pull. And, and so I froze in the moment 
and even giving words to those feelings back then is I heard a little voice say, don't give up. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel like that manifests itself in everyday life. Um, you may think you've hit the iceberg. You may feel like your path is kind of funky right now. I mean, none of us are navigating any of this very well. Like, I think if you were already anxious, this is going to make you more anxious. If you were already benevolent, you're, you're going to be even more benevolent. So I'm trying to figure out how to get that message out, at least to my friends and family, is we don't give up. Um, this is hard. These are, these are hard times and hard choices, and we're losing beautiful people in our lives, but, but we're, we're not going to give up. So my hope for today is that, that we all band together and we never give up and we keep believing in love. Well, Rondell, thank you so much for being here today. It's uh, been a wonderful story and I appreciate you being with us today. I'm so honored. I, 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 um, I'm a very humble guy. And the beauty of all of this is I hope people who listen or watch learn more about themselves than necessarily anything that I shared, maybe just something that I, I shared about me might make more sense as they discover something about themselves. So it's, it's never about anything that I necessarily experienced. It's how are we all in this together? So I'm honored to be a part of this and wish you guys such huge success with it. Just the, the concept of it is beautiful. I'm, I'm honored to be a small part, but I also hope that I held up a mirror so that people could have really brave experiences for themselves. I help others finding courage through sharing a knucklehead story of my own is, is, is something that means a lot to me, but I, but I hope the listener learns something about themselves, not necessarily about me and this experience, but that when we stand together, it's our finest hour. I'm Thank certainly you so will. much. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your Thank story. It's been yeah. amazing. Thank you. Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all rights reserved.